This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Yuseem, and you are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I am here with my good friend, colleague, Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. Um, and our third uh, friend and co-host, uh, Jeff Klein, does have the night off. So, Ann, before we get going, we've got a great lineup of uh, guests tonight. But just uh, to find out a little bit about you, how are you? I'm good, Mike. Today was actually the first springish day we've had here on campus after four nor'easters yeah, totally. in Philadelphia. Not to mention opening day for a that, lot of major league baseball. Exactly, including the Phillies. And I yeah. hear that the Phillies are up 5-2. That's true, although we're nonpartisan on this. <laughs> That's and so true. It's, Even-handed. Uh, it made the best team win. <laughs> exactly. Is that the right way to go? So, well, Ann, I'm going to just say a couple words about our guests, and then we're going to jump right in. Uh, in the second hour, 8.05 or so, we're going to bring on a Washington Post reporter, Christian Davenport, who covers the space and defense industries for the Post. And there's a new book he's got out. We've yeah. looked at it. It's really good, called The Space Barons, right. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the Quest to Colonize the Cosmos. So flying rockets uh, sponsored by private companies into space and getting us to Mars is all part of their plan, along with uh, a couple others. So anyway, we're going to talk to Christian Davenport about that world that he knows very well. But in the meantime... Our first hour tonight, and he's right here with us in the studio, is Howard Brownstein, who is president of the Brownstein Corporation, which is a crisis management and turnaround <laughs> firm based actually right here in Philadelphia. So, Howard, welcome to the room. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great to have you here, Howard, for many reasons. Um, at the top of the list, our number one, we're going to talk with you for a little while here about what it means to be a crisis management and turnaround person. And then, Howard, I know that you're very active on a number of governing boards. You're active with what's called the National Association of Corporate Directors, which is an 18,000-person association devoted to helping people do a better job in boards, whether for-profit or nonprofit. I know a lot of our listeners are thinking about going on a board, so looking forward to talking with you about that. So, Howard, let's go back, though, to the fact that you run a crisis management and turnaround firm. And just to jump into it with a, a bit of an odd question, why does any organization need to be turned around? If they've got, <laughs> if they've got good management, how come they're not already doing that? Well, I guess that's the big if. Um, and uh, companies seem to find an endlessly creative number of ways to fail. And, <laughs> and, and they frequently will not recognize it until things get pretty dire. Uh, people ask me all the time, where are your clients located? And I said, well, it's funny. They're all in the same place. They're in denial. <laughs> well, that's and, great. And, yeah, I've been there. I, I, yes. I visited. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I sometimes use the analogy. They're a little like somebody falling out of a building. And as they pass the ninth floor, they go, so far, so good. <laughs> they, they don't want to admit where they're at. They don't want to uh, face up to the failure to admit that their hard work didn't pay mm -hmm. off for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Howard, we... we adopt a, a kind of a theory here. It's been in our discussion for the last couple of years with our listeners that most people are not born a manager. They're definitely not a born leader that you can learn it, which means over time you get better at the task of managing and leading. But from what you've said, some people just sort of get into a set way and can't seem to get out of that. Is that a fair summary of what you've seen a lot of? Yeah, I mean, you know, what I find is that uh, people say, what causes the failures you see? It's nearly always under management. It's always a human factor. Every once in a while, you'll see something purely external, but even externalities can be predicted and planned for, for the most part. So typically what I see is the failure of human beings to do what it is they were supposed to do or set out to do, and then having made it worse by failing to recognize that and intervene early enough to get a better outcome. So, Howard, I'm thinking this isn't the right 
quite the right metaphor. You have all the fun. Maybe that doesn't describe some of your days, but you do have a lot of high adrenaline days. I do know that. And I have uh, read that you have walked more than a few CEOs to the elevator. All their belongings, their business, the last day at work. If you wouldn't mind just taking us into a company that you've been asked to come in to restructure, you're probably a temporary CEO yourself. Just give us a feel for what that entails. How does it? Uh, how does it go down? Well, we like to say sometimes <laughs> that your most valuable organ in turnaround management is not your brain; it's your nose. You sometimes <laughs> have to smell the risk and smell the problem. So I might go into a problem, a company that's just, it's not a mild problem. Uh, superficially, maybe they're mildly out of formula with their bank, and I'm getting my arms around the situation, and I'll say. Well, how are you doing with the trade, your vendors? Oh, we're not bad, about 30 days late, and they'll hand me a payables aging. Yes, 30 days late. I'll see mm -hmm. some concentration among big vendors. I'll say, oh, show me see the detail. They'll show me the detail, payment, invoice, payment, invoice. Great. Show me the bank statements for those months. Mm -hmm. Oh, so unless you're mailing these checks to the planet Neptune, why <laughs> are they taking three and a half weeks to clear? Which drawer are you putting them in? But meanwhile, you've relieved payables as if you've paid it, and you're giving a knowingly false document to a regulated bank. Do I have that right? Mm. Great. We just went to DEFCON 4. You, <laughs> sir, are no longer the CEO. You just resigned. You're now non-executive chairman or whatever you want to be. Here's your new interim CEO. You, you, and you are no longer signing checks because you knew what this was, was going on. Here are your new check signers. It requires to, and we're telling the bank in one hour. Now, if any of that's not okay with you, I'm leaving right now. And if I leave, the bank will have the cavalry here in, in a few hours. Yeah. So what do you want to do, kick or play? The good news is all they want is to be paid back. If you pay them back, they will report your bank fraud, but they'll mail it in. If we don't pay them back, they're going to walk into the Justice Department and jump in somebody's desk. So, like I like to say, keep your eye on the donut, not the hole. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be out of here in three, four months. I'm a temp, but... Follow what I say. Mm. So, Howard, Boy. to paraphrase um, a person who now holds very high office, the phrase that he coined is you're fired. And uh, th that's a lot of what you have to do to turn a place around. You don't want to do that, but you've done it. Uh, just walk, walk through that moment, of, uh, that moment of pronouncement with this as the back end, the person that knows what's going on is suddenly on the elevator leaving the building. And you've got now, uh, <laughs> you've got everything in your hands to solve without having a whole lot of wisdom from the people that you've just walked out the door. So pick up on that. Right, and, and I don't want to overstate that so much of turnaround management <laughs> is cutting people or firing people. It certainly happens, and you often have to make changes at the top. Um, I've never used the phrase, you're fired. Um, I don't want to create World War III. I want the person to recognize that this is really the best for the company. Yep. They may have a lot of money tied up in this company that they would stand to lose if things don't go any better than they've already been going. And I really try to let people keep their dignity, talk about how this is going to look. We don't pack up their belongings. That happens later. I don't want them doing a perp walk out of the office with boxes. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll pack their stuff up. I promise them all their personal belongings will be looked after. And that certainly happens. And I basically let them know that it's either this way or it's a much tougher way that could destroy their career. We're willing to allow them to resign. Mm -hmm. And we'll agree yeah. on a story later about why they resigned. Howard, last quick uh, question on that. When you reference we, <clears throat> who has put you in the company to do what you've just described? So um, historically, the turnaround profession grew out of public accounting. And there were these so-called workout specialists that the bank sent in on their dime to help them figure out what's going on. <laughs> the problem is that if a bank does anything besides live within its documents, it runs the risk of lender liability and being subordinated to the unsecured creditors. So what grew out of that original workout guys, as they were called, was a turnaround profession where the bank would suggest or require the company to hire help, maybe give them some names, and then the company hires you. And then I'm either an advisor and management remains in place, or I'm management mm -hmm. and I oversee people or displace people. And if I'm an officer, and one title is chief restructuring officer, 
Then there's a board resolution, which authorizes me to be that. Sometimes you need a bylaw amendment. And it's all done according to procedure. Mm. Why? Well, Howard, really a privilege to talk to you about this. If I could mm. just pick up your original thread, you said that the main cause is under management, the human factor. Are there patterns that you see in that main cause? Yes, it, it, it's a tendency to not want to see what is right in front of you, <laughs> to make excuses for it uh, because you don't want to believe it, you don't want to accept it. Mm -hmm. And so you ignore it or explain it away and don't change your course and you get further and further in a hole until it could become irretrievable. Mm -hmm. So what you see are normal human tendencies at work mm -hmm. and that's what you're up against. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then in financial, with respect to financial patterns, is it always, you know, you always see this pattern over and over again. Well, so the finance is, is the symptom. It's sort of like when, when someone dies of a heart attack and they write cause of death, heart attack. That's mm -hmm. not really the cause of death. The cause of death was their lifestyle or heredity or a whole you know, lifetime of living the way they lived. That was just the last thing that happened. So the finances are where it shows up. Now, you certainly can have a financial problem that is the cause, but usually the finances are the symptom. And the underlying cause could be a loss of their market franchise. I, I did the largest retail liquidation in history. It oh. was Montgomery Ward. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about a 125-year-old company, storied part of American history. Yeah. Gone. Uh, by the way, Montgomery Ward was a Chapter 22. Are you familiar with that part of the no. bankruptcy no, code? No, explain yeah. that. That's a company that files Chapter 11 twice. <laughs> we, no, we, very, I love very it. Very technical definition. We, we have a certain amount of gallows humor in the, in yes. the restructuring business. Like, like the ninth floor. Right, oh right, gosh. right. Yeah. So right. sometimes companies just lose their franchise and, you know, people don't go there anymore mm -hmm. and they are unable to have re-merchandised or stayed relevant. All right. So, so a company finds itself in trouble and you said that you gave a great explanation about how turnaround professionals have come out of workout specialists and that the bank will recommend certain turnout specialists to the company. How does even that happen? Is it that the bank is concerned, suspicious, something's gone awry? Is that what causes sure. it? Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, our regulated banks are, you know, supposed to be very vigilant and, you know, watch for every danger signal there might be and have all sorts of measures, covenants, what have you, whereby they manage risk. And, and our banking system is fairly safe as a result. Mm -hmm. um, and so they get to know who we are and other firms mm -hmm. like us and then may recommend us. But we may get introduced by an attorney for some party in the, in the case. Mm -hmm. You know, we're very well known in the legal community of who, mm -hmm. people who do restructuring. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a variety of ways, but the one way it never happens is that the company itself says, oh, we've got a problem. Let's get help. The first, the next one that happens that way will be the first one. Really? Okay. Yeah. And so uh, it, who does the phone call go to? Does it go to the board of directors? Does it go to the CEO, the chief financial officer? Probably senior management, although mm -hmm. if the board is on top of their game, and I know we're going to talk about boards later, yeah. mm -hmm. the board should be aware of this, and it mm -hmm. should come as no surprise, and it would be great if the board itself <laughs> would have been proactive and said, you know, we need help. I haven't seen a lot of that. But, Very good. But typically, it's bank-driven one way or another. Got it. All right, Mike. Howard, let's make this a little bit more personal in this sense. <laughs> I had a person that we've, you and I have talked about before who was a, a turnaround person like yourself, actually in class on campus here at 9 a.m. one morning. In the news overnight was the bankruptcy of a huge American enterprise. And I said to him, did you get a call this morning? And he said, yes, he did. Uh, in that he'd gone in, like you, um, um, at least half a dozen kind of rounds of this before with other major firms. The prior firm he had worked with had nothing to do with the, the product or the sector or the market of the company. Now he was being asked to turn around. So my more personal question is, you get the call, you might have a few weeks, probably not much more than I would guess, to show up and take charge of an enterprise, maybe in a market take Montgomery Ward you hadn't had to think about it before. How do you get yourself up to mm -hmm. speed? Well, so we don't tout ourselves as being industry experts. 
you know, on the one hand, I've worked in about every industry. It's easier to name the ones I haven't worked in. But I'm not an expert in any industry. And if they don't, they don't hire us for that. If they need us for industry expertise, they got more problems than we thought they had. <laughs> they got plenty of that. What they don't understand are these unfamiliar waters they're now into. It's kind of like the captain of a ship is sort of the king. Mm -hmm. But when they get to the mouth of the harbor, a little boat goes out, and that's the harbor pilot. And the harbor pilot tells the captain, sit down, have mm -hmm. a smoke. And the harbor pilot brings the ship in. They know the tides. They know the wharves. They say, give them the keys. Call me when ready to leave. So it, it's that. It's we understand the process. Mm -hmm. We have credibility. Management may no longer have the confidence of the vendors and the creditors. And the and the lenders. So mm -hmm. you need a independent third party who's not. An, we're not advocates. Mm -hmm. We're there for the good of the company. All right. I just need to take a break here to remind our leaders, our, our readers, our <laughs> listeners, our yeah. risk, all the above. Yeah. <laughs> that this is leadership in action. Business Radio Sirius XM Channel One Eleven. I'm your host here, Mike Yusim, and Greenhall's with me, and we're talking with Howard Brownstein, president of the Brownstein Corporation, a crisis management and turnaround firm. And Howard, to stay on the, the personal terrain a bit longer, uh, if you could describe ever so briefly one of your better turnaround experiences. <laughs> yeah. Just give us a feel for what it, how long it took, what it, it mm -hmm. entailed. Did you get sleep at night? Well, so, you know, when you say a better turnaround experience, I have to say that I'm outcome agnostic. <laughs> I, I can turn around any company, Mike. I really can. No matter how bad they are, I promise you, I can save it. Just give me enough money and enough time. Hmm. Well, neither belong to me. So my job initially is to tee up one or more strategic alternatives, identify the risks involved with each and the resources <laughs> each one needs, and then help the stakeholders decide. Sometimes hmm. the owners, if it's a private company, might say, you know what, we had a good run. We don't want to put chips back on the table. Sell it. We're done. And then we'll write a, a lovely booklet on this company and what it could be or could be again and try to get value for it on behalf of all the stakeholders. So for example, in one case, there was a, a generic pharmaceutical company that I was quite fine, became quite fond of in mm. later years. And they were both a manufacturer and a distributor. And through some, I think, some disagreements among the management, they just gotten into a hall. They were in workout with their bank. The bank introduced us. And we got involved and we saw that they had fundamentally a good business, but it was just being undermanaged. And we thought they needed to do two things. One, they needed to restructure the management, the ownership. Basically, one person needed to get bought out and go away. And I don't know if that person was a better manager or worse manager, but these folks could not coexist. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing they needed to do was to get some time, some running room to sort of reset things. And so they, I think, helped bring in the capital. We certainly blessed the deal brought in some capital so that they had some time in running room. Now they diluted their ownership. But the result was a great success, and that company's still in existence. And I, by the way, I give a lot of credit to the management and the owners, particularly having the courage to make some tough decisions regarding the family and the family ownership. Mm -hmm. So good. So selling is one option. What might be another? Well, depends on, again, what risks and resources there are. So if we can show that by doing the following things, they will recover and get back in formula with their bank or get back within terms with the creditors, um, get become cash flow positive again, et cetera, et cetera. We can try to sell that to the stakeholders. And you know the way that looks is I might call the creditors in a room and they all are, are very unhappy and they want these guys in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And I say, look, you, you don't know me. Uh, but if you want to give me the name of your bank or your law firm, I'll give you references. And what they'll tell you, I hope, is that he's not always right, but he believes what he tells you when he tells you it. Mm -hmm. And if he finds that mm -hmm. he was wrong, he'll tell you right away. Mm -hmm. Here's the bankruptcy plan. This row of zeros is you. This fat number is me and the lawyers. <laughs> but if what you want is these folks in bankruptcy, let's go. The bankruptcy court clerk has me on her speed dial, and the judge has to think hard not to call me by my first name in court. <laughs> yes. Here's a turnaround plan. It mm -hmm. has risk. But you folks start shipping today, COD. Mm -hmm. We will confirm the balance we owe you in writing that there's no mm -hmm. offsets or counterclaims, and we're going to start paying that in month five. Everything you get from now on in terms of information comes from us, not these bozos who've been lying to you. What do you want to do, kick or play? Mm 
and I'll have lined up two creditors in the front row. They'll jump to their feet and say, I'll do it. Everyone else says, okay. <laughs> so good. So if it takes money and time, I know time is often short. Where's the money come from? The money can come from a variety of ways. The money can come from creditors who are willing to ship on credit or forbear both creditors and you know vendors and lenders from forbear from exercising their rights, <clears throat> giving you some time. time. So whatever money you're, you, that comes in isn't already you know being used. You basically create a, t- a turnaround plan, which is all based on cash, cash in and cash out, and show how this thing will be in balance or have a, a small cushion. Mm-hmm. in case you're off, and then you monitor mm-hmm. that. You explain variances, and you communicate, communicate, communicate. You don't want these people making a decision based on what they think they know. You've got to have a common understanding of the facts. Wars begin when people don't mm-hmm. have the same facts. If they mm-hmm. knew who'd win, they wouldn't go to war. <laughs> so my job is to get a common understanding of the facts out there right away, give them someone to talk to who will tell them the truth or tell them when the truth will arrive. Mm-hmm. And restore confidence and show them that it's better than war. Now, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you got to liquidate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when you do that, even that can be done judi- judiciously and with some forethought to maximize value. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, and I'm going to actually remind our listeners oh, of our call-in number here. Yes. And you'll see why you'll hear why in just a minute. So give us a call if you'd like to join this dialogue with Howard Brownstein at 844 942 844-942-7866. And that was the lead into this question, Howard. Uh, a lot of listeners out there run uh, sometimes tiny enterprises, some um, a, a bit more than that, some uh, large hospitals, community groups, and so on. And my guess is 100% don't want to get into a restructuring. So your advice, with the benefit of looking back on the mess you inherited to people who don't want to get into a mess, what would you? what's your guidance? What I would say is, you know, beware of your own tendency to be in denial. If things are off course, if you're not hitting the targets, if you're having excessive turnover, if you're getting involved in litigation, if you have regulatory issues, I mean, these are all could be innocuous or could they could be danger signs. The key is to investigate. Don't assume, oh, it's nothing. You know, it's like a doctor. A doctor says, oh, that could be a freckle or it could be a malignant melanoma. Let's check. Mm-hmm. Let's hope it's nothing. But let's check and, and let's not assume anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to, I guess put my phrase in that you want daily detailed vigilance. That raises, though, this question with all these signals, I've, trends coming in, there's just a lot of information. So picking out the danger signs from the noises out there, what's your guidance mm-hmm. on that? That's good. Well, the most important mm-hmm. factor if – we're talking about a turnaround. And when I say a turnaround, I don't just mean, oh, we got to improve our business. I mean, there's an existential threat. Mm-hmm. We're in jeopardy. The most important factor is cash. Cash is oxygen. You could have a blindingly brilliant business plan and tremendous assets, none of which are liquid, and go broke. Mm-hmm. So you really need to monitor cash. And I would say it's good to manage cash all the time, even when you're doing great, because you never know, and it's great discipline. But I would say the number one factor is planning for cash, cash in, cash out. Can you term out any Mm -hmm. of your cash obligations? Can you accelerate any of your cash income? Maybe you call your customers and say, today only 2% prompt payment discount, even though you're not within the prompt payment period. Couldn't hurt. You know, we'll often Mm -hmm. hear senior executives say, we're in trouble and we got cash for six months. That's it. So picking up that as kind of a yardstick. I realize there are many issues you got to think about besides cash in the bank, but just to take that as sort of a, a tangible manifestation of what you're concerned about, if we got six months, we're okay, 12 months better, three months, we're about to go off a cliff. What do you think? Sure. I mean, depending on the business you're in, you know, we'll tell you what the business cycle is and how much time means what. Sometimes three months is all the time in the world. Sometimes it's a blink of an eye. <laughs> it may depend on how things work in your business. But the key is to get out in front of the problem and to be proactive. You know, my, my granddad was born in Kansas, and he used to say there were two ways to milk the cows. One way is to get up early with a pail and a stool and go to the barn and milk the cows. The other way is to sit in the, in the pasture and hope they back up to you. <laughs> so you've really got to be very proactive, and you've got to go out and make it happen. Yep. 
and do more things than you think you have to do because they may not all work. Great. Mm -hmm. um, Howard, we're going to take a break in about uh, 90 seconds, but if there's a second piece of commentary you'd offer to our listeners, number one, be vigilant, get out of denial. Remember, if you're still in the north, ninth floor doing well, there's maybe something down below you. What else <laughs> would you offer up? Well, I would say that frequently people get very dug in and comfortable in how they've always done things. And they may have ignored some opportunities. As the guy who founded Temple University used to say, there are acres of diamonds in your own backyard. So look yeah. within what you're already doing. You may find some more value. You may be able to sell your customers more than you're selling them. They, they're buying other things. You may be able to get your customers to take more inventory if you give them more terms. Now, if they're creditworthy, you could do it. You could even go to your bank and say, look, uh, normally 90-day receivable, but I can clog up my customer's distribution channel. Give me 120, mm -hmm. and we'll sell our way out of this. There's a lot of possibilities. None of them is a slam dunk. But look within what you're already doing for opportunities. That's great. Very good. So, Howard, we're going to hang on to this discussion. I'm going to put a question in front of us now for our listeners to think about as well. If a company reaches the point where they bring you in, it's a leadership failure, but it's also a governance failure. Where was the board? Why weren't they on top of this? Why do they have to bring an outsider to kind of clean up the mess that they're ultimately responsible for avoiding? So you've served on many boards. You're on boards now. You've worked professionally with uh, directors. So we're going to... Howard, get into a discussion of what makes for a good board member to uh, have averted, uh, well, many things, including this kind of a disaster. So stay with us, everybody. Uh, we're going to come back and talk with Howard Brownstein, as we are right now, about his work in turning around companies and his work extensively with directors. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. I'm Mike Yuseem. And you, by the way, are listening to Leadership in Action right here, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I need somebody, help, not just anybody, help, you know I need someone, help. All right, there is the, the theme music for our guest, uh, somebody calling for help. Welcome back, Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, we're Sirius XM, Channel 111, and of course I'm your host, Mike Yuseem, with my friend here and colleague, Ann Greenholm, and we've been talking to Howard Brownstein president of the Brownstein Corporation, a crisis management and turnaround firm. And as I said, Anne, just before yeah. we took the break there, uh, why don't we come back and talk with Howard for a stretch now on what it means to be on a board, how should boards operate, and why do boards sometimes take their focus off the company and allow it to get into a restructuring? Yeah. No, I really appreciate that lead. Yeah. And in fact, Mike, you have written a book about boards, and the title is mm -hmm. Boards That Lead. So, Howard, just have you seen a change um, in board leadership, maybe from a more passive stance to a more active stance with respect to turnarounds? Um, yes, and I would say in, the, in a general way, the, the trend in governance is upward in terms of strengthening governance. It's still a long way from where it has to be, but from where it was when I was here at Wharton in the 70s, in the, in the early 70s, yeah. uh, uh, it you know it, it's way beyond that. Mm -hmm. Governance used to be a sort of check the box, meet the trappings of corporate existence, but boards really didn't do a whole lot. Uh, I would say after the Penn Central bankruptcy in the 70s mm -hmm. and then Enron, uh, you saw a an escalation in taking governance seriously. And uh, at NACD, the organization mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, National mm -hmm. Association of Corporate Directors. Uh, we talk about the board being a strategic asset of the company. It's almost like hiring a fitness instructor. You wouldn't <laughs> hire one and ask him to go easy on you. <laughs> the idea is to strengthen you. Yeah. And so you want a board that's really going to hold management accountable. It's not playing gotcha. It's, no, we want to make you strong. <laughs> it's almost like good parenting. Yeah. So you can do it lovingly, but you better do it. And so that's where I think the opportunity still exists for many companies, particularly private companies. All too often, private companies, they have a board because they are a corporation, but it's still being treated too much like a check-the-box. Mm -hmm. We're not really using the board to accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. So when you described uh, the chief cause of turnarounds, you mentioned under-management. Would you couple that 
with uh, under management by the board of directors also? Sure. With a private company, you know, typically the board members are not independent. You know, they are insiders with yeah. the company or maybe family members if it's a family mm -hmm. a company. And so nobody is necessarily speaking truth to power. Mm. You want someone who will stand up and say, wait a minute, this is risky or this is not as good as it ought to be. Let's do this. Let's do that. All too often that never happens. Very good. All right, Mike. You know, Howard, people that serve on more than a couple of boards, and I know you've served on many boards, uh, will often rank order their experiences. This board was great. <laughs> this board was less than great. Let's pick your best board and just without naming the company or organization, why was it good? Well, that's a great question. So, so one board I was on uh, was a situation where uh, the lender group of a company that was trending toward a billion in sales, a private company, um, the lender group had gotten fed up and so they took the keys. Hmm. Now they own it, they got to run it, they need a board. So they put a board hmm. together and they were wise enough to put none of themselves on the board. They went out and hired what I used to call, you know, it's, hmm. this is self-aggrandizement, a kind of an all-star team mm -hmm. of people who do what I do or other professions that would be useful in this case. And our job, because had they forced a sale when they took the keys, they would have gotten clobbered. They would have taken a huge loss. So our job was to replace management and then build up the company with management and sell it and get their money back. We did that within about three to five years. Hmm. And they recovered. The lead bank recovered all their money and made a profit. In fact, they made more than they'd ever made on a single deal anywhere in the world ever. Oh, boy. And this was a workout deal. So much as possible. Now, I will confess, that particular industry was cyclical. So this happened at the bottom, and we sold at the top. Mm -hmm. So we had some fortunate timing. But the board really worked well with management. The rule is noses in, fingers out. <laughs> so you, you mustn't manage. You must mm -hmm. require them to manage. You can still lead. Leadership doesn't mean you're managing. It just means you are really taking your role very seriously and holding them accountable. And when they miss a number or something happens, you have to force them to explain. <laughs> and, and then what are you going to do about it? And why didn't we know that? Even monkeys can fall out of trees. Things happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. But, but, but you've got to hold people accountable. Oh, I love that expression, noses in, fingers out. And, Mike, that reminds me, long ago we had uh, retired General Stanley McChrystal on the show who asked us to call him Stan. Oh. That was very difficult. Yeah. But he had that wonderful expression about uh, eyes on but hands off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's one more phrase I can't resist. An hour to oh, before, a board has to learn. All the board members have to learn, like spelling banana, when to stop. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> so there is a line. It's often hard to see it, but uh, don't go into management. That's not what you're there for. Howard, just to make this now more personal for some of the listeners, many people would like to serve on a board who are not currently there. Not necessarily a corporate board, but a community board. Um, a nonprofit board, and I know you have worked uh, for well for many years now with the National Association of Corporate Directors, which is devoted not only to helping boards be better, but helping people go onto a board in a way they can really add value. So, for those who are aspiring, not on any board whatsoever, give us a couple tips on how to become a board member. Sure. So you've got to be very intentional. It, it, again, you, you may get uh, uh, an invitation out of the blue, but it's unlikely. So you first thing you want to do is compose what I call a board bio. And it's a bio like you use when you get a job, except that it's not designed to get you a job. It's designed to get you on a board. So what it would focus on would be any board experience you might have, as well as your value to a board, what you would bring to a board, and, and then back it up. And so you want to have that. You want to let your world, your network, know that you're interested in going on a board. Board membership is one of those paradoxical things that you can't do till you've done it. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing people ask you is, have you ever been on a board? And if the answer is no, you know, they may not take you seriously. So it's good to get yourself on a board, and the easiest way to do that is a nonprofit board. The fiduciary duties of board members are precisely the same for nonprofit board members as for-profit board members. 
Now, if it's a nonprofit board that's just giving away money, nothing wrong with that. There's not a lot of risk. There's not a lot of you know compli- complexity. I'm on a nonprofit board. We have 10,000 employees. Mm. We're in about eight states, maybe 12. We have a lot of operations, so there's a lot of governance required. We take it very seriously. And you can get on a nonprofit board because they need you. Pick one that you care about their cause because you're probably not going to get paid. Mm -hmm. But then you will gain governance experience. You can truthfully say you've been on a board. NACD membership requires you to be on a board to be a member. You can come to a couple of programs without joining and then not anymore. So the idea is to get yourself on a board, perhaps join NACD. We like to think it's the center of gravity for Mm -hmm. corporate governance. And mix and mingle with a lot of other board members. Your peers learn from them. Put the word out. I'm looking for my next board. Here's my value to a board. It might be your industry experience. It might be your knowledge of a particular function like finance or marketing or what have you, and look to match up with a mm. board that needs what you have. That's great. And, and by the way, just before we leave the activities of the NA National Association of Corporate Directors, it is a national organization. They have a huge annual meeting. Yes. But in many major cities around the U.S., they do have a local chapter. So tell us a little bit about how local chapters work and what they provide. Sure. So I'm the president of the Philadelphia mm-hmm. chapter here. And uh, we have a program nearly every month in Philadelphia. In addition, we have programs in Delaware, Central PA, and we're planning for the future for Mm -hmm. Northeastern PA and possibly South Jersey if our sister chapter in New Jersey doesn't serve South Jersey so far. Mm -hmm. They they really Mm -hmm. haven't come very far south. And we choose topics that are of interest. Our topic next Mm -hmm. month, for example, is on corporate governance and political speech. Oh, that's good. What a topical topic. I'll say. Um, Last month it was on shareholder engagement and investor relations. Mm. Um, We're doing one in Delaware next month also called Board Special Committees and Investigations. Mm. So these are all great topics. We get great speakers and people to come and moderate. And we have liberal questioning and interaction with the audience. Everything's off the record. And it's a great way to learn. And then NACD, in addition to that big national meeting you mentioned, Mike, they have quite a number of three-day programs around the country that lead to a very valuable credential. And that credential for public companies gets cited in their proxy materials. Mm-hmm. Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so is a NACD board fellow. And so it's, it's real, the real deal. And the education is very valuable. Quick add-on on that. What about executive search? So executive search is, um, in my opinion, underutilized for board positions. Too often, uh, when there's a board opening, the board members say, oh, we need somebody. Who do we know? Well, who we know is someone like us. No wonder there's no diversity. Mm -hmm. The the better way to do it is to identify, if we didn't have a board, what would we need on this board? How do we cast this play? Let's map that against what we do have. That'll tell us what we need. Then let's go search for it. Minimally, that will help build diversity. And maybe you need a search firm to help you do mm-hmm. that. It really depends on what you're looking for and what it's worth to you. Because, you know, search firms charge money, but they're, mm. you know, they, they earn it by finding you the right person. But I would, I've heard it said that maybe only 20% of the public company board seats are populated by search firms. And it's far lower for private companies mm-hmm. and hardly measurable at all for nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's growing, and all the the great search firms uh, you know have board search functions, and mm-hmm. they're building that up. Just before we go on, I do re- uh, need to remind mm-hmm. our listeners this time that this is leadership in action. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. I'm Mike Usame, and we're talking with Howard Brownstein, president of the Brownstein Corporation, which does restructuring and turnarounds. But also, Howard personally is involved in a number. Of governing boards, Howard. Just to um, just to clarify for me, your various roles. You said uh, earlier at the top of the hour that you might come into a company as the chief restructuring w- officer. Uh, Could you? Would you also come into the company as a member of the board? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I would say virtually all the boards I've joined, with the exception of one large charity board I'm on right now, had something going on. And Is may- that right? And maybe that explained why they reached out for me. 
uh, in a few cases, it was restructuring. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the public board cases, I've been on three public boards, it was shareholder activism. Okay. And shareholder mm-hmm. activism is on a huge trend upward. The yes. number of funds and the total amount of money they have has just skyrocketed. And I think it's only going to continue. And frequently, the issue that the activist sees upon that they want to criticize has to do with governance. So company boards are well advised to think like an activist. Imagine you're an activist looking at this company. What would you criticize? Because chances are they're going to find you. Right. Very good. Okay. So I'm just curious, how did you get into this business? By this business, you mean turnaround and crisis management or boards? the turnaround. Um, So during the 80s, um, I had been running a metals business, and I was on the board of a regional bank. And um, that bank was in good shape. That one didn't have anything really going on. Um, it uh, It had been acquired from a different group that owned it by the group that owned it now, and I went on the board. And it was not a big enough bank to have a workout department, so big loans came to the board for approval, and any problems came to the board. And I became the point guy for the problems. I would help the management deal with it because I had some legal training. I had uh-huh. business training. I could put them both mm-hmm. to work. And I would go to meetings sometimes with them and the borrower and try to work something out because we didn't have a workout department. And I liked that. So when I sold my, my business and finished my contract for the buyer, I changed careers because there was this thing I heard about called the turnaround profession, which by this point was no longer CPAs doing workouts for banks was now very operational mm. and coming in to help companies turn around both operational and financially. Oh, and how many companies have you turned around in this regard? Well, remember, I'm outcome agnostic. So <laughs> we, we were successful in all of them, but that might mean we liquidated them yes, successfully. Yes. So, you know, I've worked on, gosh, I guess it must be dozens, if not a hundred companies by mm-hmm. now. I, I've never counted it up. And and are you if I, and I'm going to be playful here? Are you serially monogamous? In other words, do you work with one company at a time? It depends on the intensity. <laughs> and and once I was in the leadership of a firm, then I might have several cases under my supervision, and so I was nominally the person responsible. But we had a team involved with each one. Okay. And so I'm not taking credit for whatever happens there. We have a team, and we have the management as well. So it could be more than one. It really depends on the situation. But sometimes they're all consuming. I mean, I did one a few years back where I, I arrived hours after law enforcement. And I, I was oh. gre- and I, I, <laughs> oh and I was gosh. I was greeted by five law enforcement agencies. Oh my I, goodness. I was greeted by the, the uh, assistant US attorney, the FBI, the IRS Criminal Investigation Division, the Housing and Urban Development Inspector General, and the Postmaster Inspector General. And they wanted to know who the heck are you? What's a CRO? And why don't we just put yellow tape around this building and indict the company? Oh, and that my was goodness. my that was my first few minutes on the job. Oh boy! So, how many people do you have working with you? My firm now is small. We're only about five, but mm-hmm. I sold out of a larger firm a few years back mm-hmm. that was more like thirty-five, and we had several offices. But our our teams are small. Typically, they're only mm-hmm. a couple of people because we leverage off of the management those mm-hmm. that we can you know show how to help us. All right. Now, Howard, maybe one more, and then I'll hand back to Mike. I I always learn a lot in these interviews, and I'm going to walk away from this one being very, very mindful about checking myself, not being in denial, and keeping an eye on cash in and cash out. So how do you, how do you check yourself <laughs> with respect to denial in your own in your own firm? Well, you know, you, 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 you learn to not draw too much conclusions from a little bit of data. Okay. One of my favorite stories and is about these, I think it's a mathematical joke at, at heart. These three people are on a, on, a, on a train in Scotland, and they look out the window, and they see a sheep. And the first person says, oh, look at that. The sheep in Scotland are black. The second person says, no, all you know is that one sheep in Scotland is black. The third says, no, all you know is that one side of one sheep in <laughs> yeah. Scotland is black. And frankly, it's getting dark. Maybe yeah. it's just late. Or maybe the window's dirty. Mm-hmm. So you really have to be careful about what you can conclude from the data you have. Mm-hmm. And as long as you keep that in mind and remain healthily skeptical, you can avoid a lot of heartache. A lot of trouble. Howard, I think we <laughs> learn from many, many sources. Yeah. And my guess is in developing your own capacity to turn around. You probably looked at a book by Lou Gerstner on turning around IBM. A number of uh, those kinds of accounts are out there. 
But closer in, were there a couple of people that you work with who were your seniors in some way, who provided kind of coaching or guidance, or they were a guru as you came to learn what you're doing? Well, on the governance side, the first board I did was at the Harvard Bookstore. And <laughs> um, the bookstore there is, is called The Coop. It's a co-op, but they call it The Coop. And it's a small department store, and five miles down the road is MIT, and they have their own version, and it's the same company. And there's a few smaller branches for the grad schools. And I heard that the board was students and faculty, so I stood outside the gym, collected signatures, got on the board, and we had real problems. Management had just been replaced because the, 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 the co-op rebate was vanishing. We had director misconduct, and I'm sitting next to a professor of securities regulation. We call, his name was Lewis Loss, the late Lewis Loss. He was a marvelous guy. We called his course Loss on Security. <laughs> and, he, and he taught me corporate governance at the age of 21. And I barely knew what a corporation was. And he really, and one of the, the lessons he taught me was when confronted with someone acting unreasonably, act extra reasonably. Don't get caught up in the drama. You know, I used to have a dog, and the dog was very well trained, and we had an electrical fence. But if a bunch of dogs ran by, he had to go. <laughs> he was wired. He had to go there. Hmm. Well, we don't, we don't have to be that. So if you can have that presence and not get caught up in the drama, you're ahead of the game. Hmm. And what happened to the coop? <laughs> the coop did very well. It rebounded. The and I don't get the credit. Mm. The employees get the credit. The, uh -huh. the the rebate rebounded to eight eight percent. The management we hired were a couple of retired people from what used to be called Jad and Mash, now Macy's. Jordan, yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> Jordan Marsh. Yeah, and and they to them this was a toy, and they had a great time with it. They weren't doing it for the pay. They just liked staying active, and the thing did great. Now, now, this may be a delicate question here, but when you just look out on the landscape and hear about companies, are there any, are there some red flags mm. that might be obvious to us, even if we're not looking closely at the books? Well, the question we should always ask ourselves when something happens is, when mm. was the earliest anybody could have discerned that, and why wasn't it? Picked up, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, the, in the latest big scandals, Facebook and yeah. and Wells Fargo and mm -hmm. and 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 VW and right. all that. I mean, it it was possible to have picked it up much earlier, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. People didn't want to see it, or the systems were set up not to see it. The culture is very important. What what did uh, uh, Drucker say? <laughs> uh, that strategy, strategy for, <laughs> for breakfast. Lunch. Yes, right. yeah. You know, so it's true. Mm -hmm. You know, at GM, uh, the, the, the workers knew those ignitions weren't working, but their job was just reported yeah. one, one level up, and if they don't do anything, you just shut up. And what you want to have as a board is an 800 number that anybody can call without retribution. Now, people will misuse it. Mm -hmm. Someone who knows they're mm -hmm. going to get fired is going to call up and say, oh, they're harassing me or this or that. you got to be able to sort these out. But fundamentally, you want to have anybody call who sees anything that makes them uncomfortable. And you got to get your managers to treat that as healthy, not a threat. I once went to the Toyota uh, Motor Company in, in Nagoya, Japan. After the workers arrived 20 minutes early to do calisthenics together and sing the company song, they go to work and there's a suggestion box. And if that suggestion box isn't getting suggestions, the managers get criticized. Why aren't your people throwing in ideas? The whole idea of an air curtain mm -hmm. to keep heat in was created by an employee at a steel mill in Japan who saw the furnace open up and all the heat rush out. And he thought, wait a minute, why don't we do what we do at department stores where we keep the air in from the outside? Mm -hmm. Great idea. So you want to create a culture mm -hmm. of we want to be the best, and that means we want it to come from everyone. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the company. Mm -hmm. Very good. Great. Thank you. Howard, we're down to our final minutes here. <laughs> and just to kind of pick an age out of the blue here or out of the air, if I'm 25, <laughs> I've done my MBA, or maybe not, at least I've got some business in my background, and I'm thinking, wow, I'd love to do what you do. How do I go about becoming a restructuring guy or woman? How, you, we've talked about going on to boards, but it's really the restructuring piece right now. Right. And, it, and by the way, it's never too young to try to get on a board either. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, historically, the turnaround profession was populated by people who had been off doing something else. They were in public accounting. They were a CFO. They were a CEO. And then maybe they went through something. They, they actually had to do a turnaround. And they thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And they became a turnaround professional. 
during the downturn, when we all get very busy, the big turnaround firms were hiring people right out of school. So you can mm. acquire the skills to do this. The Turnaround and Management Association has courses. Anybody can take them. They have a, an mm. exam for certification. Now, to get certified requires five years' experience, mm-hmm. but you mm. can pass the test anytime. And then you're a certified turnaround mm. professional designate. Oh, great. Acquire the five years and you get your certificate. Mm. So the, there are skills doing 13 week mm. cash flow projections, learning how market share trades off with cost competitiveness. There are skills you can acquire. That said, maybe the 25-year-old you're describing, maybe they want to go be a doctor the way their mother wanted them to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or a was lawyer. That true, or a lawyer. Yeah. Was that true for you? <laughs> uh, well, I actually was, uh, I, I was accepted in a way to medical school. Jefferson and Penn State had a five-year program right out of high school. I was accepted, deposit paid, mm. and then I thought, wait a minute. And I went to Wharton instead. <laughs> and, and the rest is back. history. <laughs> the yeah. rest is and history. I, made, I made the right decision. <laughs> Very good. All right, Howard, close to the end of our time here. For listeners that would like to learn more about the National Association of Corporate Directors, what, how do um, I find about it? So about the, it? the website is nacdonline.org. Uh, if you put philadelphia.nacdonline.org, you'll see our chapter and our programs. Um, but you can certainly check out NACD, and uh, we're always looking for people to be interested. And by the way, I think you're in probably at least a dozen cities around the country. 22. So most major cities. Most major chapters, cities. So check it out. Yeah. And just finally, for the Brownstein Corporation itself, how do people learn more about you from the web or beyond? We have a website, brownsteincorp.com, and, and there's information there about us and as well as the banks and the law firms tend to know where to find us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And just to close then with the final question about you, are you kind of on call in the sense that you, I don't know if you're doing a restructuring right now, but who knows what the next year or two might be. And so what is it, if you are on call, have you got your bags packed? Uh, at all times. You, you, you have to be able to move quickly. Frequently you get a call that things are dire yeah. and you don't have a lot of lead time. You know, when, when I was a kid, the, uh-huh. the gold standard of crisis response was the Tylenol problem yes. with the adulterated bottles of Tylenol. It took them three days to get those off the shelves. Today you have 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So you'd better be prepared. These games are won in practice. You're not going to get three days to solve a crisis. When you go on site, this is the last question. Now, when you go on site, you probably don't know how long you're going to be there, but typically, is, is it a week? Is it a year? What, what, what's um, the scheme? It's in between. I would say it's, it's usually at least a few months. Um, it can stretch on longer, and the level of intensity can vary. You know, you might be 24-7 for a while, and mm-hmm. then things stabilize a bit, and you're reducing. You pack mm-hmm. a big suitcase. Well, or you, you know, you shop at Target and buy what you need. <laughs> yeah, or you FedEx it back and forth a lot of exactly. ways to go. Howard, thank you so much yeah, for joining you. us uh, tonight. This has been great. Thank you very much. It's been great, too. <laughs> Super. Appreciate it. All right, everybody, don't even touch that dial in front of you. We're going to take a very short break. We're going to come back and talk with Christian Davenport. As we said at the top of the hour, he's the author of a great new book. It's about the space race, uh, the private sector space race. It's kind of re- Place the uh, the government to government space race of a couple decades ago. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm with Ann Greenhall. You are listening to Leadership in Action Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.